Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. There's a lot going on. Never uh, never a dull moment. I said last night, like, remember when the election was a thing? Yeah, not really that big of a thing anymore, it feels like. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm sort of at a loss for words. Um, everything that's happening is... I don't know, uh, on the one hand, inexplicable, on the other hand, feels kind of natural. I don't know whether that's because this is something I've been waiting for or expecting kind of consciously, maybe unconsciously, um, or because there is undoubtedly some comfort in what uh, occurs when a situation like this takes place, this being a crisis um, and the symptoms of a crisis, I think being remembering what really matters. And I don't know, I feel like I'm experiencing like more synchronicity and more intuitive downloads than I have in a while. I think because when we don't have the opportunity to plan or control or see what's coming next, that we're sort of forced into a space of presence. Um, I haven't really thought about that until right now, but that would be a reasonable explanation, I think. I just feel like everything is, you know, sort of fitting into place and things are clear, if not, you know, tragic and scary. They're definitely clear. Today, I am sharing a conversation with you that I had um, with Eli Marienthal. We recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago now. It was basically right when all the kind of quarantine and lockdown recommendations were starting. And I remember saying him to saying to him at the time, like, you might be the last person I don't know that I'll be seeing for a while, at least inside a house. Um, and I'm pretty sure that was the case basically. Uh, so this episode occurred at the sort of very beginning of the beginning of the end, the beginning of whatever the hell we're going through. Uh, and, um, we talk a lot about intuition. I think, um, this conversation has sort of been marinating for me over the past couple weeks and in listening back to it today, um, I've definitely been thinking a lot of these, about these themes that we discussed. Um, Eli, along with his friend Jesse, organizes, uh, trips for young boys and men. 
sort of like vision quests, uh, group vision quests into the wilderness. And um, he was introduced uh, to us through a mutual friend, and we had a really lovely conversation. And he's definitely one of those people who I feel like I resonated with immediately. We had a lot in common. Um, so I'll let you listen to the episode and won't like describe the entire episode to you before you hear it. But, um, I did want to, let's see a couple of things. I wanted to talk about some housekeeping stuff first. For those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a while now, um, you might remember that I used to talk about Patreon all the time. Uh, Patreon is a website where you can go on and donate some money to artists and creators and just people doing cool things that you want to support. So often it's pretty hard in this day and age to make a living doing much of anything creative. Um, Podcasting is definitely one of them, especially if you're someone like me and you don't really want to have sponsors on the show, which I don't and never have. Uh, Really the only way to make money on something like this is uh, through donations from listeners. So I had set that up uh, at the beginning And the way that it works is that I sort of set up different tiers so people could donate $5 or $10 or $25. And depending on which, uh, within which tier you donated, you'd get access to all these different perks. And I had really high hopes for the amount of content that I would have the energy and time to produce. So I feel like I totally overpromised on that. And I kept it up for a while. I was releasing bonus bonus episodes every month and putting out worksheets and these like weekly columns of inspiration. And it was cool, um, but it was way too much work, especially for the money that was coming in. And at that point, the podcast had a lot less, uh, a lot fewer listeners than um, it does now. So eventually I just sort of started to resent the entire thing. And uh, then didn't really feel comfortable talking about it or asking anyone to donate because I felt like they were going to be donating under false pretenses, like, oh, but I can't deliver all these perks that I promised. Of course, mainly, I hope the reason that most people were donating and anyone who plans to donate in the future, you know, the podcast in and of itself is worth donating to without any of the extra perks. So to donate to the time that I put in, the equipment, the travel costs to go and talk to people, all of that. Um, I hope that whomever is donating, and I think this is the case, that they just sort of appreciated and valued the podcast and didn't care that much about the perks, but still, I'm a recovering perfectionist and I felt really bad about it. So it's been on my mind a lot, and I think one of the wonderful things a crisis like this does is remind us what's really important and what we care about, and this was a project that I knew I had to deal with and something that I knew I had to solve. So I did a bit of a Patreon overhaul. I went back and forth deciding whether I should just take it down entirely, but that didn't feel right. Um, I thought about maybe setting up some sort of like donation or subscription service on my own website, but alas, my website is another project that needs to uh, be dealt with because it's like a half done website. Um, So for now, I decided to keep the Patreon, but I revamped it a little bit. So I uh, lowered the amount of tiers that are available. It's just five, 10 and $25 a month. And for the most part, everyone gets the same benefits. Um, There is one thing I'm particularly super excited about that we've already kicked off is a group WhatsApp chat for those who donate at the $10 a month or up level. I think more than, uh, I mean, in general, but more now than 
at any other time. I think having community and recognizing that we're all in this together is imperative and vitally important. So I wanted to create a group where you guys could communicate with each other directly. You could discuss episodes. You could ask me questions directly. Um, you could send articles. I'm going to be, uh, crew, you know, sending lots of articles that I've been reading in that way. Um, art that I see music that I've been listening to. Uh, so that's been really fun. And all already I feel just like really uplifted and inspired by those who are in that group. Um, and then some other things I'm going to be doing, I'm, I think I'm going to be creating playlists once in a while. So I'll be releasing those to pa- uh, patron as, patrons as well. Um, that's just starting at the $5 level. So uh, you can get those no matter what level you're on. And then if you donate at $25, you get all the same perks and you also get uh, one of my t-shirts. So um, all that to say, I'm really excited about this. I'm really excited about it for the patrons that are already donating. But if you are able to, I know times are really challenging right now, but if you still have a job or have a lot of savings and feel like it would make you feel good to donate to something that means something to you or that you found valuable, I would really appreciate it. Um, the podcast is at the moment, my sole source of income. Um, I've basically eliminated all of my other jobs in an effort to focus on what I really wanted to focus on. So, um, if you've listened to this podcast and find it valuable, Uh, If you want to donate basically the equivalent of a cup of coffee to me a month or a couple of cups of coffee or like a really expensive raw juice a month, um, I would really appreciate it. Uh, The way you can donate and find out more information is by going to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Anya Katz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. And you will see all the information about all the perks and how to donate. Um, I'd really appreciate it. If you don't have the money to donate, I totally understand. Um, Another great way you can support the show is to leave a review on the iTunes store, hit subscribe, and leave some stars. Um, I know that might sound silly and just for my own ego, but it actually helps the podcast show up more in search results um, and helps other people who are curious about listening um, maybe feel more convinced that uh, the podcast is worth their time. So if you listen on iTunes, just go hit subscribe, leave some stars, write a quick review. It only takes a couple of minutes and I would really appreciate it. Um, and then of course, if you do have a few dollars to spare, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. And I'd be really excited to have you as a patron, especially if you join at the $10 and up level, um, to be a participant in this WhatsApp group chat. Uh, just the introduction so far have been fucking awesome. You guys are literally the coolest fans. Okay. Housekeeping over. Um, before we begin the episode, I just wanted to comment on one quick thing that I was thinking about that I think obviously both relates to, uh, the time that we're in right now, but also this uh, conversation with Eli. My brother sent me an article, um, about grief, uh, grief in relation to this pandemic and, uh, everything that's resulted everything that's happened as a result of it. I uh, shared it in the WhatsApp group chat and we've been talking a bit about it. Um, But it was an article about like that, yes, partially maybe what some of what you're feeling right now is grief. And um, it spoke a lot about uh, anticipatory grief. So like 
we don't really know what we're grieving yet. We're sort of at the moment grieving maybe the loss of our jobs. Um, we're grieving the loss of some sense of security, but there's also not really an end in sight. We don't know where this is going. We don't know when and if we'll get our jobs back. We don't know if members of our family are going to get sick. We don't know if we'll get sick. A lot of us had plans, work plans, vacation plans, all sorts of things that were canceled, and we don't know if they're going to get rescheduled or not. So there's this grief of anticipating loss, uh, which I think um, also obviously takes place if you have some a loved one in your life who is gravely ill, who you think is going to die. It's like this sort of liminal space where you kind of know what's coming, you know you don't have control over it, and it feels wildly unnerving and upsetting. Uh, so I wanted to talk about a couple of things because I think in this moment, as I sort of said at the beginning of the podcast, I feel like I'm experiencing a lot of synchronicity and I feel really grateful for the part of my life, I guess the spiritual part of my life that feels very grounded in a sense of like knowing wherever I am or wherever we are collectively is where we're supposed to be. And that um, I think before I really understood what spirituality was and when I sort of saw spirituality only through the lens of like organized religion, I thought that was sort of a weakness. Um, I no longer feel that way. This is something uh, Eli and I discuss that you'll hear. Um, I'm really grateful for that because it's something that I can come back to that always brings me a sense of calm and a sense of peace. But I wanted to talk about it because I feel like it can also be used in a really spiritually bypassed kind of a way, right? Where we're saying like, well, if it wasn't for what happened to me, I wouldn't be who I am today. Or, you know, just like, let's, let's bring our awareness back to the present and just be, you know, at peace and not feed into the fear and just know that everything's going to work out. Um, that's ridiculous, right? Like things may quote unquote work out and yes, being in the present moment is important, but we're humans. Um, we're not gods and we have emotions and we struggle with loss and grief and lack of control. And, um, I think to sort of recognize that we can exist within both, both spaces, we can exist within the groundedness of knowing wherever we are is where we're meant to be, but that, what is included in that space is an acknowledgement of and a processing of emotion. And in this case, it's painful emotion. I don't want anyone to think that by crying, I've personally cried maybe every day. Um, I don't want anyone to think that by crying or by being scared or freaked out is somehow a failure on your part, you know, that you should rise above it and people have it worse than you do. And, you know, um, that you should be more like spiritually mature or something ridiculous. Uh, when in fact, obviously I think not, um, living within the full breadth of our emotions is actually pretty spiritually immature, just immature period. So I'm not going to talk that much about it, but it was just a thought that I had that I wanted to share with all of you that it's okay to sort of move back in, uh, back and forth between the spaces of, calm and knowing and peace, but also fear and grief and, um, really struggling with not being able to plan for anything and really struggling with knowing that there may be more losses and more pain ahead of you and you simply cannot do anything about it. So, uh, just lean into it. 
that's all we can do. And, um, it, it will teach us something, maybe not right away, maybe not forever. Um, but there is the possibility of all of this stuff to teach us something. So I think the answer is just to sort of sit back and listen and be curious. It's a big theme, theme of today's conversation with Eli is just really get curious about what this intuitive information, um, is and what's being sent to you and, you know, how might you use it to make decisions in the future? How might you look back and realize, look, my intuition was saying something to me in the past and I didn't take action. And looking back, I wish I did. You know, how will we take that lesson with us moving forward? All right. On that note, I will let you listen to this conversation. Um, I'm going to play you in. I like this. I'm doing two songs recently, which, uh, feels good. Music has been really helpful to me right now. And also like one of the things that's been incredibly synchronistic. I feel like I keep hearing songs that relate to my current situation, uh, which was partially why I created this playlist, um, that I shared with all my patrons. Anyway, uh, this song was on it. It's, uh, all at once by Jack Johnson. And I heard it in the car the other day. I was driving to Colorado, uh, where I am now. Forgot to mention that. I think I said in my last episode that I was going to Colorado, but made it. Feels good to be here. Feels kind of like I'm in a different world, um, but it feels really nice to be out of the city uh, and in a place that I feel safe. Anyway, all that to say, this song came on uh, sort of right as I got in the car on the way, and it couldn't be more perfect and uh, sum up a lot of the feelings that I think we all are having right now about this situation and what we need to do moving forward to leave a, to live a more meaningful and sustainable life for both ourselves and so enjoy and catch you on the other end all at once the world can overwhelm there's almost nothing that you could tell me That could ease my mind Which way will you run When it's always all around you And the feeling lost and found you again A feeling that we have no control Around the sun, some say It's gonna be the new hell Some say It's still too early to tell Some say There really ain't no myth at all Keep asking ourselves Are we really strong enough? There's so many things that we got too proud of We're too proud of We're too proud of I wanna take the preconceived out from underneath your feet We could shake it off and instead we'll plant some seeds We'll watch them as they grow and with each new beat from your heart the roots grow deeper The branches will they reach for what 
nobody really knows But underneath it all there's this heart all alone What about when it's gone? It really won't be so long Sometimes it feels like a heart is no place to be singing from at all There's a world we've never seen There's still hope between the dreams The weight of it all could blow away with a breeze If you're waiting on the wind Don't forget to breathe Cause as the darkness gets deeper We're sinking so we reach for love At least something we can hold I'll reach to you from where time just can't go What about when it's gone? Oh, it really won't be so long Sometimes it feels like a heart There's no place to be singing from at all All right I'm here with Eli, who I love when I have a guest that I don't know that much about. because um, I, I can't really prepare for it, so the conversation kind of goes in ways I didn't expect. Um, I guess what I do know about you is that it seems like you've lived a lot of different lives or live a lot of different lives. Um, I know you were an actor, are an actor. Um, was an actor. Was an actor. Maybe an actor again someday. Yeah. Are you not in something right now? I had a, a web series mm. called The North Pole come out uh, recently. Did a couple of seasons of that with some friends in the Bay, but um, otherwise it had been a long time. Yeah. And when did you start? How old were you? I got my first acting job when I was nine. Mm which was a CBS movie of the week with Dolly Parton in which she plays an angel who comes down to earth and has to bring a broken family back together by Christmas in order to gain entry to heaven where she can sing in the heavenly choir, which, uh, spoiler alert, she succeeds in doing. <laughs> I was the, the son of the broken family missing my mom and, uh, that was where it started. And did you always want to act? How did that how did that begin for you? My older half brother was an actor from the time he was very young. Our father got him into it. And I had been interested. I'd taken some acting classes and um then one weekend my mother ran off to Utah with her uh, first deadhead, then fishhead boyfriend, and uh, sent me to L.A. to spend the weekend with my brother. And I was just running errands with him and ended up going by his manager's place. And she said, oh, well, you're adorable. Would you be interested in, uh, in auditioning? I said, sure. And uh, by the time my mother picked me up at the airport, 
I had callbacks in LA mm. and uh, she was just eminently supportive of the whole thing, really never pushed it. But uh, as far as I wanted to take it, she really rode with me. And did you feel like when was that transition where you felt like in need of a transition? <laughs> well, it came to um, a pretty natural end. I think I always figured it would, mm. which I'm really grateful for. I know a lot of young actors who can't imagine what else they might do with themselves. And I, I always figured that it was something that would phase itself out of my life, in part because I never really identified as an actor. You know, even in high school, even when I was doing it a lot, if you'd asked me to, you know, five words that describe yourself, I'm not sure actor would have made my top five, although it was obviously a very significant part of my life. But I felt like a climber. I felt like a poet. Um, I felt like a scholar, you know, but not really like an actor. It was always a job. And I could see that some people did it so artfully and really practiced it as a craft. I had a lot of admiration for good actors. And I, I just never felt it was exactly in my toolkit. I don't even say that in a self-deprecating way. I, you know, I, I really marvel at people who um, are skilled at it. Mm. And I always thought I was a, um, a functional actor you know, yeah. good enough. And so uh, when I graduated from high school and my agents who'd kind of been working with me uh, over many years from the Bay said, oh, good, you're done with school. You can finally come to LA and work full time. And I wanted to go to college. I didn't want to move to LA and just be driving around the valley and sitting in casting rooms. And um, I think that's really the moment where it started to shift because if you become an adult and you're not going to put yourself behind it full time, it's like, all right. Well, Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel, I also, I didn't really ever do it professionally, but I wanted to be an actor up until some point in college when I decided I actually wanted to learn something and not learn to act. That just didn't make much sense to me. And I had all these other interests. Um, but that sort of transition of like, I talk about this a lot on my podcast. I think a lot of people get really into something or identify with something and then feel like sort of transitioning out of it or exiting out of it is, is like a failure, like to admit, like, look, I knew that's what I wanted to do at a certain point. It felt right, but now it doesn't. Um, did you feel any of that sort of guilt or fear around moving into something else or no, maybe not because in the beginning it wasn't you didn't feel super self-identified with it. You know, if there is one thing that I would um, identify as a as a personal strength, hmm. I would say it is the quick turn. <laughs> yeah, and that wasn't even that quick a turn. Yeah, um, because there were so many other things that that always really captured my attention in a much more profound way, and that I um, felt were more deeply. Uh, embedded in my soul than the acting. Um, but it's it's always been true. It remains true. It's actually a skill I would say that I have really honed in my life is is that, that kind of hearing the voice or hearing the bell. And it's like, ding, time's up, 
quick move, get mm-hmm. off the freeway. It's like, that's not happening anymore. I'm going somewhere else now. Um, and it was kind of like that. You know, I, I remember actually the, you know, I went back the summer after my, my freshman year of college and did a bunch of auditions. I remember sitting in a casting room and feeling terrible about myself. I was like, I know I'm not prepared for this. I know I'm not right for this. Mm. Um, I just, you know, used a quarter tank of gas in traffic on the 405 to get to this for nothing. And, and the way that I feel in my body, the way that I feel about how I'm spending my time right now, uh, no longer makes sense. And, and, and that was really that. Um, it was it was a pretty clear and definitive moment. There wasn't much of a taper. It was like, this is no longer appropriate as a way to, to expend life force. Right. Yeah. I mean, it feels definitely like an, some sort of intuitive understanding and knowing, which I think is quite absent. Um, one, I don't think we're taught about intuition, I think especially men, um, but anyone, women as well. Uh, and I think a value that we, like, I, I feel like for so long I had no idea, like, what do I think versus what someone else thinks and what feels right and what feels wrong and how do I identify it? Um, well, there's, there's a tremendous, um, you know, history and industry around, um, you know, producing for us our sense of desire, in all aspects, you know, what do we desire for our lives? What are our ambitions? And so it's, it's a, it's a pretty, um, you know, intimate and intricate part of the, of the, of the life cycle, I think, to start to sort that out for ourselves. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, cobwebs to clear to know what we think and feel. Yeah. Is that part of, I'd love for you to talk about like the sort of, um, inspiration for founding the the is it an organization or just a company it's a company yeah Uh, we are we are structured as a we are structured (laughs) as a for-profit uh entity that is how the irs considers us i don't know exactly how we consider ourselves you know it's an umbrella under which to do the work that we love to do right um can you talk a little bit about i guess what it is but also the inspiration um for creating it in the first place Sure. So it's called Back to Earth, and it's a company I run with my best friend from high school, uh, Jesse Sachs. We went to Berkeley High together. Um, We started backpacking together when we were in high school. And he grew up backpacking in the Sierras. He had like one of those families, like threw him in the backpack when he was a baby. And I did not grow up like that. But we started going out when I was 16, he was 17. And it was a really profound shift in life to discover that we could just get in the car and drive to a trailhead and get out of Dodge and be really sovereign in a way that, um, you know, even for teenagers with a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility, you can't really be in the city, you know, really to be in, in control and command of our own time space out there was something super precious and um you know how we came to be doing it together as adults is 
Boy, we both had totally other lives and we thought we were doing totally other things. And then in a real short version, both of our lives kind of exploded. Um, the story of mine, you know, I think of it sort of like a, you know, like playing poker. And I like turned all my cards in. I got a brand new hand and back to earth was was in the cards. Uh, I didn't foresee it. I was up until a month before we decided to do it, still uh, working full-time on a PhD in human geography. I was pretty sure I was uh, on a track to a life in the academy. Uh, You know, two months before that, I was like, yeah, I'm getting married to this woman and uh, you know, I'm doing my research in Haiti and that's my life. And, uh, and then three months later I was single and not in a PhD program and, um, offering wilderness backpacking trips for teenage boys. So it all happened very fast. And I take that as a really good sign. You know, it it was just meant to be, it's like cleared the space and it's what emerged. We put it out there in uh, 2014, neither of us had done anything like it before, but we knew what it had meant to us as 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds to have that kind of relationship with the wilderness. And we knew that it was the time in our lives where we'd really developed um, a friendship that was founded in a kind of ecstatic reverence. It was a, a time when we were learning what it felt like to not just for ourselves, but to have a friendship that was based on this kind of like going out in the world and being in awe and feeling enthrall. And um, so I was like, well, do you want to see if we throw this out? We'd both been doing a lot of training and a lot of learning over many years, had some skills you know, has some things to share and uh, see if anybody signs up. And uh, and folks signed up. And so we just kept doing it. We've been doing it ever since. I'm getting ready for our sixth season now. Amazing. Yeah, yeah that sounds um, not unlike my trajectory as oh, yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely had my, had all that space open up. Similarly, I had a career. I was married and thought I was going down one path and then it sort of violently abruptly shifted uh, my own doing but unexpected it wasn't sort of like a conscious intentional premeditated decision do you remember um, I'm, I'm so curious what that what it was like to the shift I mean I just think I I for most of my 20s I think had made decisions based on the assumption that the life I wanted to lead and the person I was that there was not space for that in the world that I was in um I was interested in topics that I couldn't find really many other people were super interested in and felt really alienated and I think I one thing sort of led into another it was a very like anti uh intuitive journey I think I just like okay this will work now this will work now and sure I'll do this and I wanted partnership and um it just led to a place where I was not where I wanted to be but not totally conscious of that 
And then I think, um, I sort of discovered that in a way that I didn't expect and didn't know what else to do, but to basically like jump off the cliff and hope for the best. Mm. (laughs) Um, and yeah, it was in that mm, sort of mm, couple years, there were a couple years of just like deep, intense pain and, um, yeah, it became very clear though, once the space was cleared, what needed to happen. It's where I decided to launch this podcast and, um, you know, Chris and I talk about this all the time, like the need to sort of jump off the island or, or leave the island before knowing if you're going to find another one. Mm-hmm. And that middle ground is the most terrifying, but I think like the most important space where you make decisions about what is no longer good for you, even though you don't know if you're going to find anything better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, <clears throat> I feel that you know, the mercy of my life is how quickly the, um, the new Island came into view. Yeah, I feel so <laughs> grateful for it. Yeah. You know, it's like, I really could have been out there swimming into the, into the distance for a lot longer and I would have done it. You know, yeah. it, it was definitely what was happening, but I was also terrifically relieved yeah. at how quickly, um, the the next version of life took shape yeah you know it was, it was pretty total and um and it felt so full so fast i think it does tend to do that i think when you've truly i mean there are ways that you can try and trick yourself into thinking oh, you've you left really the jumped. island exactly yeah. but if you really jump i don't know i mean personally and i feel like anyone that i've talked to or met who's been in a similar situation the new life, the new version, the new option does present itself rather quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, which is partially, I think that's a story that sort of with all the people I have on my podcast, it is a, um, that story sort of represents itself and represents itself. Like this need to sort of break down everything you thought you knew. And once you do that, you, you know, blossom into this other thing that is every much more, I think, greater and more, um, like whatever the Island is that I found is like way cooler than I even Mm -hmm. thought it could be, you know, and I was willing to leave regardless, but. Well, maybe um, that's the measure of, you know, for us to like keep in mind the measure of whether we've really left, mm. you know, whether we've really jumped off, like. I don't know. It still feels like I'm really just swimming out here for nothing. Like, yeah. Are you sure? You're not just like kind of standing on shore. Right. Check ourselves like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I feel like, and I especially, I'd, I'd love to hear like how that experience, I mean, certainly the experiences you had when you were younger with Jesse, but also that experience in itself, like what are some of the tenets of the program you have, um, and what you're teaching. Is it all young men? We run programs for schools Mm. that are co-ed. Um, but the summer backpacking trips are just for young men. Mm. Yeah. And so what, what are the sort of, like, if you could, I know, I think I read somewhere like storytelling and outdoor, uh, like understanding how to survive in the outdoors, like what are those sort of tenets that you feel are really important to teach and, and how do you feel like that experience you had of sort of swimming off the island, like is that part of the lesson or one of the lessons that you're imparting? Yeah, 
the the experience of becoming curious enough about the intuitive information I was getting to be willing to make the terribly inconvenient choices, what seemed to me at the time to be terribly inconvenient choices for my life, and seeing them not as a problem, but actually getting curious. I mean, like, what would it mean for my life to listen to this? You know, what, what will unfold over the course of a lifetime from being someone who takes that information seriously, really seriously, enough to actually act on it? I think that informs the, everything that we do, everything that we teach. Um, because what I want for the young men that I work with is to, one, feel their own deep intelligence, their own um, embodied intelligence, to connect to their own emotional intelligence, and to connect to the, excuse me, <clears throat> intelligence um, of the natural world of the whole creation that holds them and that they are a part of. And so the, the sense that there is a lot of information available to us all the time and that we can tap into it in a lot of different ways, sometimes by quieting and sometimes by um, really engaging very, um, you know, very proactively, I think runs through everything that we do. So we teach a lot of hard skills, a lot of sort of basic competencies, how to be in the wilderness, how to work with your gear and how to tie great knots and, um, you know, how to make fire from friction. We do all that stuff. But ultimately, the program is less geared towards those kinds of hard skills and technical competencies, which I think there are a lot of people out there who teach that really well. Um, you know, some of them better than us, probably. But what we are doing um, that's most interesting to me is actually uh, encouraging young people to um, be in an ongoing conversation with themselves and with the world around them, and to really be tending to the quality of their own experience first and foremost, as as actually the relevant thing that's happening at any given time. Mm. Yeah, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, I've always <clears throat> feel like I've had an interesting uh, relationship with, but also um, just like feeling about m men and masculinity in general. My dad's gay, so I think I... Uh, I feel grateful to have had, uh, I feel like a male figure in my life who embodied sort of like feminine and masculine energies in a way that, uh, didn't feel conflicting and didn't, um, you know, I, I, I one of the main reasons I, I started the podcast during the Me Too movement and I felt like a great deal of sadness around the victimization of men and masculinity. And even in articles that I read now, I think we've become a lot more nuanced in our exploration of these ideas and thoughts. Um, 
but the sort of categorization uh, of of men, especially as it relates to like how these young boys are sort of integrating that information, I feel like a lot of sadness around it. Um, and I'm curious, like what when you uh, when these young men come to you, like do you what are the sort of cultural frameworks or limitations that you feel like you are helping to unravel? Um, uh, or, or do you see the sort of same sense of like sadness around the, um, uh, sort of status quo of thinking around like who men are, who they're supposed to be? (laughs) Um, you know, the, the young people that I work with give me a lot of hope hmm. that the conditioning is <clears throat> is um, less thorough than we assume. Okay. Um, you know, all of the things that are commonly said about uh, young men and about men are true, you know? It's like to, to a point, it's like, I meet these guys and, you know, very often there's a, you know, a a certain kind of um, armoring that makes it difficult to express themselves or express their feelings. There are, you know, some pretty familiar and recurring ways that uh, constitute the appropriate things that guys can say to each other and the ways they can um, express themselves to each other, even when they're being, you know, quote unquote, sensitive or in an intentional space. And, um, you know, a lot of what we're doing is uh, to go out and be in our own kind of cultural world where the predominant mode of being is to be exceptionally kind and um, and quite sensitive with each other. And what I see is that a lot of that other conditioning unravels itself pretty quickly. Um, you know, in the course of a 10-day backpacking trip, the amount of the holding and um, kind of boundary setting, the, the sort of tension that, that guys hold, you know, a great deal of it dissolves. Um, you know, I don't know that we actually even talk so much about masculinity at this point. It's funny because a lot of young guys, by the time they're 16 or 17, they've actually now grown up in a cultural milieu in which they've heard about the conventions of masculinity you know it's like toxic masculinity is a phrase that most you know 16 or 17 year olds at least in northern california are familiar with you know they've they've had a lot of these conversations and um you know they've they've already been told that anger is the only appropriate emotion that they've been allowed to feel so it's like they come in these are not new concepts to them and um, and yet, you know, if there's if there's one thing I want to really um, impart to them, it is the um, it is that having a full emotional life 
is the most courageous thing that they can do. That it's not, um, there's nothing, there's nothing soft or hard about it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, um, you know, how to say, yeah, just that, just that, that is, you know, I have a, I have a teacher who talks about the true yin and the true yang. And um, she is a self-identified post-Taoist. She's really reformulating some of these essential qualities kind of at a very, um, at a very ground level. And sort of the reformulation that she is working with that's been very inspiring to me is instead of thinking of yang energy as um, assertive, dominant, rational, um, all of these things that kind of get mapped onto a conventional masculinity, that in her reading, and this makes a lot of sense to me, the true yang is actually expressive, wild, um, enthrall to what is happening, described as like being on a galloping horse and completely out of control, but holding on and just riding it. Mm. And I bring that in to say, you know, what is it like to be, you know, really in a true young place? It's to like be having all of your feelings. Not to get stuck in them. I think we're all pretty familiar now with the distinction between wallowing and your stories about it. But, but really to have an emotional life, you know, that moves, that gallops, that, that has intensity to it. It's like otherwise, you know, why? You know, otherwise, what are we doing? Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I, it's, I think I'm talking a lot about I've always been talking a lot about duality. Um, but like these things are not, they're not even complementary. Like they exist within themselves, right? The yin and the yang. Like these things contain parts of each other in, and make up a whole. It's not black and white entirely. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I find also there's confusion too. It's like I... I want young men also to recognize that doing those things, embodying their emotional life is not in contradiction to being or feeling or embodying, you know, masculine identity either. Um, and I read some article recently, there was a woman who was interviewing young men in, in high school and, um, I think I forget who wrote it or where it was, but I, I, I wasn't super into it. And I remember she said something in particular that was like, that seems like women want men to be both sensitive and aggressive. Like, I don't understand how that's possible. And I just thought to myself, like, really, are we really that simple minded that we, we don't recognize nuance. And, and I do imagine though, that part of that is that we aren't taught these things. Um, nuance is, I think, for many people, very difficult to... Well, it's both... I mean, of course we could want both and, right? you know, of all things. It's like, I think we are in 
like a, a moment of uh, planetary consciousness evolution where, where you know, the, the age of the both and is coming, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the, the future is both and. Um, but also just to go back to that and be like, do we want men to be aggressive? You know, it's like, I actually think you need to like yeah, stop on that point point too yeah. and be like, because so just to go back to like the, the, you know, a true yin, a true yang, it's like there is, you know, a formulation in which um, a sort of a conventional understanding, like the kind you could print off the internet, where it's like essential qualities of yin and yang, you know, where you would find things like um, dominance mm-hmm. and passivity. And um, it's not just an inversion to say, you know, no, the, the true yang is expressive and it is, um, it has a wildness to it. And the true yin is a, is a field that, that holds, you know, that receives, that has a, a, a deep um, patience in it. But it's like, there's no dominance. There's no dominance in it. It's like, I'm not, I'm not really sure that dominance per se is actually part of the essential qualities of, um, you know, of of being, you know, I'm not sure that dominance actually isn't sort of a, a way that human beings have kind of like re restructured and inserted their own, um, their own ends, you know, similarly, you know, it's like, do we want men to be aggressive? Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, you know, they're, this kind of goes back to the earlier in our conversation, the ways in which our, our desire itself has been, colonized you know the way our desire itself has been um thwarted the ways in which we you know are have have become quite alienated in many ways from our own desire so it's like dominance you know i i i'd actually um be really be really cautious you know about saying that anybody truly desires that yeah, and I think this is, I also find in this conversation, language is, fails um, mm-hmm. a lot. I think I, when I sort of read that, what I sort of saw was these young women trying to express something that they didn't know how to express, which was like, maybe it's not aggressive, but aggressively something, you know, full of life, like mm-hmm. you said, full of maybe aggressively protective, like whatever that thing is in, in, um, have you read, uh, what's the book, um, uh, king warrior lover. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah. Sort of looking at masculinity through mythological, um, lens. Uh, and I, I do think there are aspects of young aspects of masculinity that aggressive is definitely the wrong word, but bold in mm-hmm. a way. And I mm-hmm. think that's what these young women were trying to say. Like, I yeah. want, I want to, feel safe, but I also want to be held, right? It was that sort of duality that I think the author sort of wasn't able to pick up on and wasn't able to ask further questions about. Yeah, it's like, can someone be both, can someone be safe without being meek? Right. You know, it's like yeah. intuitively, obviously, right. yes, as you say, it's like, <laughs> right. um, you know, can you, can you be spirited mm. and, um, yeah, and, and bold and even brash, without breaking things 
And right. I want to say absolutely, unequivocally, yeah. yes. You know, you can have an ethic of not breaking things, including other people, other people's hearts, um, you know, and and still not fall into, you know, like timidly tiptoeing through your life. But I don't know how you how you teach that other than to um, other than to be it and be around other people who you see doing it. I think ultimately, you know, that is that is the the purpose of having good teachers. Is I mean, it's it's great to you know get the good words from them. Almost really, you you find teachers gravitate. I have at least you know gravitated towards teachers in my life who seemed to me to just be doing it. You know, had a style that was like, yeah, that thing, they're, they're doing that thing, which is, which is precisely that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the teaching of it, I agree. I think it's something that, I don't know, we're not necessarily discovering, we're just remembering. Um, and I think I'm sure the work you're doing, you know, to get out in nature, to have, be, have, just have quiet, (laughs) to not have screens and distractions in front of us. Um, that there's so much value and, and, and that this isn't about like even something, finding something or learning something from the external. It really is just recognizing that we know these things intuitively, um, but we can't get a hold on them until we get quiet enough to do so. And I think that quiet is frightening, you know, at first, especially, um, because there might be things we're doing or choices that we're making that we know on some level are not serving us. Um, and I think that's, I think that's partially what I sort of went through. I just kept sort of going and going and busying myself to the point where I wasn't hearing that as, as much as I should. Um, and then once I had the space and quiet in order to hear it, uh, it wasn't like, okay, now I get it and I can live my life. There was a painful transition there. Um, well, and once we get really interested in our own experience, then the painful transition, you know, it's not that we like pain. Like we're human beings. Like we don't like pain. You know, it's like, let's not be, let's not be, you know, uh, pretentiously, you know, abstract about it and like, oh, every experience is equally valid. It's like, no, we like it when it feels good. You know, we don't like it when it hurts. And that can be true at the same time that you don't think of, you know, the painful transition as somehow less than or want it not to be happening. You know, we can like both have a real preference for the things that feel good and be um, extremely curious about the things that don't. I mean, that's really part of going out there into the woods with with these young guys as well. It's like, if you're not interested in the things that are uncomfortable, if you're not interested in the things that don't feel good to you, if you are more interested in being entertained, distracted, diverted than in the intensity of your feelings, whether they are your emotional feelings or whether it's the feeling in your body of, of hauling a pack up and over that mountain, you know, if you're not interested in that, you're really going to miss out on a great deal of what uh, your human lifetime has to offer you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like there's also a part of what you're doing that's like initiatory for men in some way? I mean, I think we all... Um, 
you know, when we look back in our sort of previous tribal existence, I think there was a transition from, you know, child to adult that I think we try and mimic now, especially like I see some things like even like gang initiation or like the military, like there are these, we're craving these sort of like deaths of our previous selves. Um, and we're trying to replicate that experience in institutions, um, or programs that I think are, are not, uh, appropriate necessarily. Uh, do you feel like that's partially what's happening uh, with these programs with the men that you work with? You know, the word initiation is, is a, it's a real one cause it's really meant something so real for so many people. So I, I don't use it you know, it makes me think of a story that my first really important teacher in this way, a guy named John Stokes out in New Mexico, told some years ago, you know, he spent a lot of time with Aboriginal guys. And, um, you know, you say, an Aboriginal guy would come up to you and, you know, just in, in casual greeting, like, you know, put his hand on your shoulder, you know, just looks like a, just saying hi. He said, but what he's doing is he's, he's, he's feeling to see if you got scars Mm. there you know or some groups of guys they you know put a little stick up on your front tooth and pop that baby out so that forevermore you you talk and got a little whistle so that everywhere you go everybody knows that you are an initiated man and you know, he told the story in the context of, of being an elder who a lot of people over the years have said, hey, could you could you take my kid out? Could you initiate them into something? And him saying, even as someone who's been welcomed deeply into a lot of cultures, you know, had invitations to really be initiated and foregone it to be the kind of, you know, rainbow wandering being that he is instead, says, you know, I can't initiate anyone. I'm not an initiated man myself. And I feel the same way about it. You know, I have been um, taken in by good teachers, taught a lot. I have my own experience to go on. And and I'm doing what I can out of my particular, you know, um, cultural bits and bobs one, to, you know, make something for myself that feels like belonging and then to be able to offer it down the line. And I just don't think we can talk about initiation per se because it's a relational thing, you know? It's, it's both a thing that one becomes initiated in the act of being recognized as initiated. It's a dynamic of like... I know who I am and I know what I owe to these people because they know what I am and what I owe to them, you know? And we're just, we're just dealing with the fallout of not having that kind of a relational social structure. And, um, you know, if you could get it back by throwing some kids with uh, some backpacks in Yosemite for 10 days, you know, we would not be in the mess that we're in. It's, it's just not that simple. So, you know, we're, we're making do. And that's, that's what I'd say is like, we have some really powerful spiritual technologies at our disposal, um, teachings, 
medicines that have been passed down the line. I'm talking both in this in this moment about, you know, uh, like what we do while we're backpacking, but also we as modern people, you know, like we as uh, Americans, we as Northern Californians or whatever, um, you know, we, we have some ways to find ourselves again, find our way back. But I think we have to be really honest that it's a searching time. You know, it, it just might be like that for our whole lifetime. It just might be like that for many lifetimes. It might be like that forever, like that 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 thing of being initiated. You know, it that might be kind of a a social cultural artifact of a time when um, groups of people recognized each other as my people in a way that's no longer possible, for better or worse. You know, there's some things about that that are really great, and there are some things about that that are a devastating loss to the to the overall human patrimony. You know, so I don't talk about initiation, um, but it is a rite of passage. It is a rite of passage to go out and, you know, as our guys do, spend, you know, 28 hours by themselves sitting somewhere to be in a three-day ceremony, making their preparations and um, foregoing food and, and just being by themselves, doing something that has no other point other than to acquaint themselves with themselves. You know, that is in and of itself a passage for anybody, for especially for someone who has spent their whole life more or less trying to keep themselves entertained or do something that was going to, you know, immediately advance their worldly ambitions in school, in sports, etc. So it's a passage, it's a journey, and, um, you know, maybe if someone initiates me, yeah. <laughs> it'll change the conversation. Yeah. No, I think it's important. I was going to ask you about that sort of mirroring um, I, uh, I have several friends that are psychotherapists. I've gone to therapy myself quite a bit and I did an astrology apprenticeship and gave readings for a while and, um, was in that community and sort of this um, sort of self-made shaman guru follower leader kind of thing. And I, uh, it was, it was fascinating to me. I think the, um, I was, you know, obviously I think we should all be really hesitant and um, skeptical around anyone that sort of uh, claims they are initiated or are, you know, they're not learning anymore, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that's such an important lesson for us too. It became exceptionally clear to me when I, someone came to me and was having a conversation that this conversation was about me as well. And whatever was happening, the content of that space had a lot to do with my own learning and my own growth or my own lack of initiation. Um, and I, I want to impart that I think to as many people as possible too, that, you know, like, I just don't think the growth ever stops or shouldn't stop. And well, the beautiful thing about initiatory processes is the ways that people know where they are in a, um, sequence of relationships. You know, you got the the old guys out at the fire who are already like waiting in the bush. Hmm. And then you got the younger guys who are like gonna come through the village and like 
ah, scare the boy and, you know, swoop him up and take him away. And you got the little boys who are just, like, trying to get back to their mom's house. And some guy in the mask is, like, you know, taking you out to the bush. And everybody mm-hmm. knows the sequence. And someday you'll be, and then someday you'll be like that. And um, that part of it, I believe we can really hold on to. So I, I do see myself in a sequence of people. You know, it's like, I'm a young man myself. So I'm talking to these young men. I'm not talking to them as an elder. You know, I'm not talking to them as someone who has, uh, I mean, has it all, has much of anything figured out. I am talking to them as someone who has had the benefit of men in particular, but not exclusively, but you know, in this context, let's say men older than me who got to wherever they got in life, survived whatever it is they survived, and then looked backwards and said, young blood, if I could spare you X, you know, let me just tell you, you know, something I wish I'd known was, you know, and in that way, really sharing with me not just how did they do it, but like, can I please save you the time? Can I please save you the heartache of not knowing? You know, it's like my, my hunk of dad, my, my adopted dad, uh, spiritual uh, teacher, you know, spent three years in Vietnam, learned whatever he learned about life and death and love, and God, um, out there getting shot at, and shooting people. You know, it's, it is it is the mercy of my life to be in a in a time when I mean, never say never. Things are changing fast these days, but it is very likely I will not have to go to war. So. I can, I can look back on that and say, you know, I'm going to have been robbed of my opportunity to go become a man in that way or learn what I need to learn about, you know, love and life and death and God because I'm not going to go out and, and be out there shooting at someone. But it's his sincere prayer for me to get, you know, to get to skip that part of it, to not spend so many decades, um, you know, drinking and drugging and, womanizing and whatever else, you know, people do when they come back from war until they can finally like get their heads right. And it's like, can I, can, can, can you save, can I save you the decades? And I feel that way about the young men I work with. You know, it's like, I didn't go to war. I can't spare them that, but it's like, hey, if I could spare you, um, you know, this many years of like sitting around smoking weed, thinking that, you know, being, you know, having your brow furrowed and your hood pulled up and being too cool to anything, um, you know, could I, could I save you the years of that? You know, could I save you the years where you just like, uh, you know, have your feelings? Yeah. Um, you know, then that's what I'd want to do. And so in that way, we, we recreate in our own modern context without any kind of cultural embellishment, just the same principle of what can I transmit that would be helpful right down the line. Yeah. 
Do you talk about, or I think one other thing that I, again, sort of intuitively learned from myself when I needed to, but this whole idea of spirituality, I'm curious if this comes up, um, in the groups that you lead and if it does, how you talk about it or what it means. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about it a lot and I've made a really conscious decision over the years to, um, forego the kind of bizarre translation that I used to engage in in order to be what I really am, which is like a God freak, um, in a secular society trying to, um, you know, like let people's parents know that, um, I'm not going to do some like weird Christian thing or anything or try to indoctrinate their children about anything. Um, because I myself come from a, a secular upbringing and remain, um, you know, profoundly irreligious. Yeah. Um, you know, I say God freak, and I know that that's like going to be extremely triggering for some people. Oh, God, I know what that means. And, um, you know, I used to have all of the aversions to the words prayer and God, et cetera, that everybody did. Or some, that many people have, yeah, you know. Um, and I, when I started doing this work, I would just do linguistic backflips, not to say it, lest someone think that I was maybe trying to like make them believe something. You know, it's like I don't want to make anyone believe anything. Um, but I do want to be authentically myself with them. So now I, I just kind of tell people outright, like, look, I'm going to just talk the way that it makes sense in my head. <laughs> I, you don't need to talk like this. None of these words need to um, be how you relate to the world. You know, if you want to call it a, an intention instead of a prayer, it's like, great. You know, it's just, it's how it sounds to me. And um I actually feel like it's a pretty core part of my, the long arc of my work. I say it's not, it's not what I'm doing on any given day, but over the course of my life, as I imagine it, you know, bringing spirit back into the conversation with young people in particular, um, feels really like part of what I'm here to do. You know, I, I did a, I did a poetry performance, um, some time ago at this fancy prep school in Marin. And, you know, I just wanted to check with them about a few things. Cause you know, I write the way I write. And I was like, I have, um, poems. I just want to see if for an all school assembly, like, what do you guys think? The words, uh, fuck, the words pussy and the words God. And they basically got back to me and were like, um, fuck and pussy are fine. Uh, in what context do you want to say God? You know, that's, that's a trip. Yeah. That's a trip. Um, but that is kind of the situation in which we find ourselves like so, or at least here in, you know, again, just to situate us here in Northern California. And, um, I remember being someone who had that kind of an aversion to the word God. Um, I mean, I'm a Jew, but I'm like the kind of Jew, you know, we're like 
communist Jews. Same. You know? And um, I, uh, I studied abroad in, in, uh, in Senegal, in West Africa, which is an overwhelmingly Muslim country, with a strong Catholic minority. And um, I can just kind of use this to track where I was at. I remember on our first week, we were kind of doing our like intro tour of the country. And we went to this very famous church where they are well known for this syncretic musical tradition of bringing the sabar, which is a specifically Senegalese drum, into the Christian, into the Catholic hymnal. And I remember sitting on the bus, just like petulant ass 20 year old me. And it's like, I'm just gonna sit on the bus because I am so opposed to organized religion that. I'm not even going to go in this church because you can't take the good things, separate them from the bad things. You got to just know the whole thing is so fucked up. And I'm just going to sit here on my, on my iPod and listen to the new Ludacris album. And you guys can just go be like suckers in there. You know, it's like I can just think about that um, and, and find myself. And just like um, that was the intensity of my aversion. So I, I have empathy for the people who, um, you know, either because they grew up really religious or they grew up without it at all, just hear it and cringe. And, um, I'll just say I'm grateful for myself. I'm not here to proselytize anyone about anything. I'm grateful for myself, um, to, to have healed up whatever my thing was with that word, you know, so that when I uh, open my mouth, when I'm, you know, by myself, when I'm sitting in my room, when I'm hiking on trail, or most especially when I'm driving in my car, you know, I can just open my mouth and any number of words might pour out and they just all feel good to me, you know, and say, Oh, God, you know, oh, creator, thank you so much. Oh, spirit, tankashala, wakantanka, great mystery, adnai, shankwaya, disan, you know, it's just like just all the names for the creation, they just all feel good to me. You know, I just mean what I mean by them. And, uh, and it's funny, I'm, I'm going to marry a woman this year who grew up very Catholic. Her parents are extremely Catholic. Like, And then I meet people who are like, oh, yeah, my parents are really Catholic. And I'm like, mm-mm. Let's compare. (laughs) You know, they are like so Catholic. And um, I was out in uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they're from this past winter. And it's such a trip to discover that, I mean, politically, socially, I mean, religiously, like we just probably disagree about everything, you know, everything. And yet we can have such great conversations about God because they just mean what they mean by it. And I mean what I mean by it. And we just don't need to dig into it too much. You know, it's like everybody, um, everybody can just have the relationship to that, which is bigger than themselves. And, um, and I want that for the young people that I work with. I want them to have a sense that there is something bigger than themselves and I just don't think that's like a thing we should be having a, you know, a weird cultural debate about. It's like, like we're going to somehow, you know, like 
poison the well if we like insist to our children that there is a power greater than themselves. It's like, yes, there is. You know, I mean, call it what you want to call it. Imagine it how you want to imagine it. You know, personalize it, anthropomorphize it. But it's like, call it, you know, just like the the random odds of the universe. You know, whatever. It's like, there is something bigger than us. And, um, and so when we go out in the woods, it's like, if you're not checking for that, it's like, what are you looking at? What are you listening for? What are you doing out here? Like, again, kind of like, what's the point? Why'd you come all the way out to the mountains just to be like totally wrapped up in your own little thing? Um, so that's, that's kind of a long answer to like, yeah, yeah, it's like the (laughs) bringing spirit in and, and being frank about it is for sure part of what I'm, what I'm here doing. Yeah. I, I, uh, I again had a very similar trajectory. I think I, I was raised Jewish, but mm, pretty secularly. I mean, I, I had a bat mitzvah, but I, it didn't mean much of anything to me. It just all seemed like rhetoric and sort of meaningless banter. Um, but there was one moment that I always thought I always remembered and that I referred back to during this period of time in my life where, um, it was important to remember it. And the, The rabbi at the temple that I went to was giving a sermon and he, his wife had just had twin boys and there was some really intense complications in the birth. And there was a period of time in which he wasn't sure if his wife or the kids would survive. Um, and he talked about that in that moment of not knowing, in that moment of recognizing that he had no control, that the only thing he could think to do was to pray. And I remember thinking I must have been 12, maybe 13. I remember thinking, you know, if I'm ever in a situation like that, if I'm ever in a situation where I feel totally, quote unquote, alone or out of control or just scared, like I I feel like I'm going to want to do that too. Like I, I, when I'm alone, I want to have the understanding that I'm not totally alone. But at the time, I so didn't identify with organized Judaism or any sort of religion that I didn't understand how to connect those two pieces. Um, and I think I thought that it was like a weakness of sorts, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, these people can't just be good people for themselves. I got to do it for Jesus or whatever. Um, and I, it's interesting because I now like, yeah, don't see it as a weakness. I, I see it as the thing that made me not weak at a time when I, um, really needed that. <laughs> Let the cat in <laughs> just so then she'll go back outside again. Um, and, uh, but, but I get, again, like going back to this nuanced space, I think I also like went through a period of time where I was like, okay, I believe in something greater than myself, but now I'm attaching all this meaning to it. Or I'm like, okay, I see this number somewhere and that means this, right? Mm. I think there's a danger there too to, um, to take it too far and to think we know too much or to think we're somehow a God or, you know, that can get dangerous as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's this, like, I think, I, I mean, I don't see it as a weakness, but I do see it as a sort of sobering, humble, uh, situation to feel a part of something bigger. Um, and I think it's wildly important and, 
that there's a, there's, I guess there's maybe just like a vulnerability in that and a safety in that at the same time. That's very well said. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually spot on. There is a vulnerability and a safety in it. And, um, yeah, I, I really love that story about your rabbi. And I think my, my life has been, um, over the past many years, you know, I can really track it as a, as a process of lowering and lowering and lowering, again, my threshold for what the feeling is, where what the system does about, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, as Stevie Wonder says, you know, talk to God, you know, it's like, so that you don't have to feel in like the depths of despair or feel completely and utterly alone. It's like, I have trained my own system over time. You know, it's like, I just feel funky. You know, I just feel kind of like, meh. Or, you know, right now as like the world is, uh, you know, on coronavirus alert and we just don't know and planned life is canceled. You know, I, I just, even on the, on the drive down today, you know, it's like I started out with my headphones in and I was like listening to stuff and, um, and, and I was just kind of feeling a little, man, I don't know, you know, it's driving rain, it was cold, he doesn't work in my car right now, it's like, just a lot, a lot going on, and I just noticed that I, I instantly feel better when I turn my attention towards, um, towards one, my gratitude, and towards my sincere desire for well-being for myself and my people and all people. That's really what, what it does for me is like, it, it just really clarifies. Um, cause when I'm just spinning out in my head, I'm, I'm doing the other thing that the human mind does. It's like, I'm comparing, I'm comparing myself favorably to other people. I'm comparing myself adversely to other people. You know, I'm like, um, comparing the things I like and the things I don't like, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, I start I just start talking out loud. I say, oh, you know, thank you so much for my life. Thank you for another day to be here. Thanks for taking such good care of me today. Thanks for taking such good care of me every day. Thank you for all the love in my life. Thank you for all the people who um, have ever been kind to me. You know, thanks for how much I wish everyone well. You know, it's a way to remind myself. It's like, Nobody else has to be listening. Like I'm listening, um, but it's a it's a particularly um, compelling form medium you know, of communication for me. Yeah, it's like, and then I think where where we really get into trouble is presuming that we know something about where that goes, how it gets delivered, what you know, means, who or yeah. what it picks up, <laughs> yeah. what what effect it even has in our lives. Right. You know, it's like. We don't know right. the mechanics of that, you know. We don't know the mechanics of, of of anything that we can't really put our hands on. And even then, it's pretty tenuous, you know. But it's like, but how does it feel? It, which, again, brings us back to, like, the quality of our emotional lives is really um, not a kind of side effect, but, like, the main event. You know, it's like, cause then, then you start getting curious. Like, wow, 
is it really that simple for me? Like when I'm when I'm feeling funky, like can I really um, can I really find in myself like open up a channel of communication to you know fill in the blank myself the sky you know um, the divine you know and can it really change my experience? Like can I really alter the way that I'm that I'm experiencing life right now? And, and, and the more that the feedback says yes, it's like the more inclined I get to, to make it a pretty central operating principle of my, of, my, of my day-to-day, of my practice, not of my theory, not of my philosophy, certainly not of my like theology, but just of my practice. Mm. So I read something to switch gears. Are you... I know you said you are in a PhD program. Are you again, or is that the same? I read some, the reason I'm asking, I read something about how you were writing uh, your dissertation on um, public space and belonging. Is that something that's happening now? <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, I guess I'm like a ninth year PhD student right. who hasn't made any progress on it in a couple. That was a little bit of an outdated bio. Um, I got into um, graduate school to work in Haiti, mm. and um, for several years, I was um, conducting a couple of different research projects. The first and primary research project was in Haiti, where I wrote about the politics of humanitarianism, um, in particular around the kind of humanitarian industrial complex that emerged in that country after the earthquake in 2010. And I was also working on a project um, in Oakland. Uh, Oakland has been in the midst of pretty tremendous change. And um, so we were writing about, we were writing about gentrification but in a somewhat different way to kind of go back to this, um, you know, your, your enduring interest in, in language, it's, it's possibilities and limitations. You know, we were writing about gentrification as a grid of meaning, mm-hmm. as a way of locating a vast array of social, political, and cultural um, phenomena. And the ways in which rather than a kind of external process, there's a lot in the literature about like, no, no, this is what gentrification, the definition of gentrification is like the, gentr- the definition that we're using. I argue in this paper that gentrification is really defined by, you know, I was like, whoa. Um, you know, what we were interested in was just like, you couldn't read a restaurant review in the East Bay Express without it being somehow about gentrification. Mm. You know, you drop somebody off on any corner, you know, blindfolded and they take it off and they look around and they're going to like read the landscape in terms of like, well, you know, the paint's peeling off that, but you do have that coffee shop. So I must be in this kind of a place. And so that was really our interest was in how this kind of meta narrative of the changing city um, was, was being used pretty fluidly by a lot of different people in a lot of different circumstances to kind of like jockey for um, positions of authenticity, belonging, and the ability to make certain kinds of claims on public space. For sure. Yeah, I asked, I've I've always been very 
interested in by notions of public and private space and how the interplay between the identity of the space and the identity of the person within the space. Um, and I think it's a concept that it's, it's again, like you said, with language, it's hard to identify. There's an author, his name is Michael Warner. He wrote a book called uh, Publics and Counterpublics. He's written a lot. I haven't read this book, but he talks a lot about like the convergence of you know, all these different fields of thought into sort of identifying the importance of um, actual physical space, which I think is something we, you know, neglect to think about that much, um, but which is like immensely meaningful and important as it relates to belonging um, and sort of seeing how groups of people have carved out space uh, I always sort of maybe overly simplistically sort of see the world in, you know, the tangible and the intangible. Like we have ideas and we have beliefs and and we have feelings um, and then we have the physical, the physical space. And like, I feel like we, we don't make that connection very often, like to take the ideas and the beliefs and the concepts and put them into a, like something you can touch and feel and exist within in a physical way. Um, and I feel like that's definitely a huge goal of my life is to like create a physical space that embodies these sort of intangible feelings and, and desires. Um, but I was sort of curious if there was any overlap and sort of what you had been thinking about or researching. Um. Well, geography as an academic discipline, I mean, it's, a, it's an, an immensely broad discipline topically, you know, but it takes the production of space as its central analytic. So um, you can ask about um, all the same things that you would ask about, you know, in political science. But instead of presuming that a, a political institution sort of exists as a set of norms, directives, and protocols, and policies, you say, well, a political institution exists in space. It, it lives somewhere. It has a physical reality. It's also all of those other things, you know, but, but it produces a certain kind of space of its own, you know, it's like the buildings, the kinds of spaces of that people work in and, um, you know, and it, it also has a sort of a material reality out in the world. It actually has to unfold somewhere. Ask any number of, sort of, um, you know, sociological questions. You say, but, but where, how, you know, and for me, the, this notion of, of the space, um, it's really, it almost goes back to, to where we started this conversation with like yin and yang. You could very often find, um, you know, time being viewed as the kind of, uh, you know, time and history as the sort of, uh, assertive principle, as the yang principle. And then space as somehow a separate passive um yin principle in which history unfolds you know it's like mm. it's all happening somewhere but space is just kind of the container in which it's happening and you know the 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 training it's so interesting to look back you know, as i like left my life in the academy to 
to do the work that I'm doing now, but uh, I feel so marked by my education um, in in the in the geography program at Berkeley because what I really learned was to think relationally in a very different way and to think about you know the physical space is not something that pre-exists or exists autonomously from the way people use it the ways it is conceived of the um its various histories you know it's like here's a little thought experiment you know it's like imagine you're you know there's like a little patch of jungle in the amazon and um you know, no one, no one's ever been there. It's like maybe there is some little square mile of the jungle. It's like no one's ever been there. Okay, that space has a certain kind of, you know, physical reality. And Europeans show up, and they draw a really like general line. You know, say this is Portuguese, this is Spanish, and somehow that. A little bit of land has now ended up on a map somewhere. But doesn't mean anybody's ever going there. It's like, has that space changed? Mm. Is, that, is the space of that, of that little piece of jungle different? And then say, um, you know, then there's like satellite images. You can like see it in some tremendous detail. Like then has the space changed? And I would say that yes. You know, I, I would say that that by the time it exists in a kind of conceptual place that it gets um, absorbed into a bureaucratic sphere, that images are produced about it, that it becomes the um, object of, you know, competing governmental interests, that like, yeah, it has actually, it has actually changed. It does not have an, an independent existence. Mm. Yeah, and I feel like the work you're doing, I mean, I... Uh going through the period of time that I did, I always just felt like if I can just have myself and like just sit in nature, I'll be fine. <laughs> like that sort of reclaiming that space as like my own, as my own or our own spiritual entity became so vitally important. And that relationship between like my influence on it and its influence on mm-hmm. me was profound. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. All right. Well, I, I could keep talking to you, but I'm going to hand you off to Chris <laughs> to have probably a different conversation. But before we do that, um, if you could tell the listeners uh, where they can learn more about you and the work that you're doing. Um, and then secondly, if you had if you could recommend one book, which I know is a hard question, but one book to the listeners, either about this conversation or one that just really impacted you in your life, what might that be? Mm. So the first is an easy one. You can learn more about Back to Earth at www.backtoearth.org, all spelled out. And um, registration for our summer program is um, now open. We're still assuming that there will be a Yosemite (laughs) wilderness uh, in July 2020. It seems like a pretty good bet. It'll still be there. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll see about us. And if I could recommend one book, um, right now it would be uh, A Brief History of Seven Killings mm. by Marlon James. I'm a big fiction reader. 
And um, I just think what he has done in that in that novel um, to capture the intimacy of a personal experience of history at a grand scale is quite stunning. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hello again. Thanks for sticking around and listening to that conversation. Um, such a cool guy. I hope when, I hope when and if all of this stuff, uh, goes away or at least, um, improves a little bit that, uh, we can get together and talk more. Really enjoyed, um, him in general as a person and, uh, very much encourage you to check out his work. He has a TEDx online and there's a couple of recordings of him speaking, um, just a really smart, inspiring dude. So if you're looking for more, and, um, he was also on, uh, Chris Ryan's podcast, Tangentially Speaking last week. Uh, they had that conversation to follow up on this conversation. So if you'd like to keep listening, uh, head on over to Tangentially Speaking. Um, again, just as a reminder, um, if you'd like to support the show for the equivalent of basically a cup of coffee a month, um, head over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Anya Kotz. Uh, and if you donate, you can help me continue this podcast, um, grow the audience, um, and be a part of a really awesome community. Uh, one of the perks that I'm really excited about, as I mentioned, is this WhatsApp group chat. So if you donate at $10 a month or more, um, you can participate in that. But I'll be sending out book recommendations and playlists. There's already one up there uh, that you'll get access to when you join at any of the tiers, um, $5 included. I'm going to just be sending lots of different things that are interesting me, interest that I'm interested in, that are interesting me. I don't know. Can't thank you guys. Um, But yeah, I would really appreciate it. If you don't have any money to spare, head over to iTunes and hit subscribe or leave a review and some stars. Um, I definitely don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling the need to like really put my money where my mouth is and recognize, you know, where I'm spending my dollars and my energy and make sure that they're going to people and places and things that, um, are moving everything in the right direction because my God is a lot moving us in the wrong direction. And as best I can, I would like to opt out of that and, um, support the things and people that are actually making a difference. So if you feel that I'm one of those, I'm honored, even if you just feel that way and don't do anything about it. That's amazing. Um, but if you do have a few dollars to spare, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Um, I'm going to play you out with another song that I heard on the drive. Um, my brother, who is responsible for the music in the intro of this podcast, which I'm actually thinking of updating soon, not because of the music. The music's cool. I just feel like my intro is a bit played out um, and was created a while ago, and I would like to update it. But Anyway, that's the future. Um, All that to say, uh, his music is in the background. I've played his music a few times on the show. Um, And back when he used to play music, he would send out these weekly podcasts called, um, podcasts, uh, playlists called Peanut Butter and Jams on Spotify. And it was like the highlight of my week. He has a really good taste in music and it was all very eclectic. And Um, anyway, he stopped doing it and it was the worst thing ever. And a couple of weeks ago, I opened my email and was surprised that he was once again sending out these playlists. Um, so this song came from that original playlist. Uh, and then I included it on the playlist that I created for my patrons. Um, 
it's a really good driving song and, um, I don't know. I don't really even know how to describe it. It's a mashup of a lot of different styles, but, uh, definitely my kind of thing and feels like a good sort of anthem and ritualistic piece of music that, um, yeah, makes me feel alive and a part of something. So I'm going to butcher the name, but I think it's called Manguillero, Manguillero, featuring Ali Boria, um, and it's by a band, I have no idea how to pronounce this, Bauka, B-A-I-U-C-A. Um, as always, I write all the names to these songs in the description of the episode, so if you can't find that based on my horrific pronunciation, uh, just go to the description of the episode and you'll find it. Uh, so enjoy, love to you all, hope you are staying as sane as possible, but a little insanity is also always okay. Talk to you next week. <laughs>